0: Good uh, Good morning, everybody. So Isaiah chapter 44. So we'll uh, get started. So uh, last week, uh, Daddy made the point that as God promised the nation of Israel that he would get them through adversity to come, that he's not only capable... Of doing that, but he is inclined to do that. He wants to get us through the adversities that we face as well. And uh, today's passage uh, continues the the larger theme that that's basically, you know, we've got God on our side, or I guess more accurately, God's got us, and uh, He's enough for us, and all comparisons and any lesser little G gods are really nothing of no account whatsoever Let me see if I can see most everybody uh, so let's uh, let's start um, looking at uh, chapter 44 and and some of this uh, picks up the uh, the continuing thought of chapter 43 so we'll just uh, read a few verses so you can get this get this theme that of uh God basically saying that he is, he's for us in in every way imaginable. In verse 1 it says, but now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour out "'Water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground.'" That's a phrase, of course, we've encountered before. Streams in the desert. "'I will pour out my spirit on your offspring "'and my blessing on your descendants, "'and they will spring up among the grass "'like poplars by streams of water. "'This one will say, I am the Lord's.'" And that one will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, "'Belonging to the Lord, "'and will name Israel's name with honor. "'Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel.'" And his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. And there is no God besides me. So here we have a nice transition verse here. God's saying, I am for you. I, I, here's what I'm going to do for you. Uh, when things are like the desert, I'm going to make it brand new. I'm going to provide the water. As we've heard, that's so necessary. Such a blessing when you don't have it, you take it for granted. And now we have this shift. Um, we have this shift that says um, uh, there's this... Um, he's going to be making an argument here. He's going to be making an argument that um, I'm God and all these other idols are not. All right, And that's, that's going to be what we focus on today. But just to, to pause there and to, to look at a larger passage in perspective... One commentator that I've been following along um, somewhat in my study goes all the way back to, to chapter 42 in verse 10 and says that, that this big unit basically has a following outline. It says, basically, with certainty, Israel will be delivered from captivity. The key passage there. Back in chapter 42, uh, I guess you could start with, uh, I guess maybe verse 13. Uh, The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. I've kept silent for a long time. I've kept, kept still and restrain myself like a woman in labor I'm going to groan but I'm going to lay waste the mountains and the hills verse 16 I will lead the blind I will make darkness a light before them it goes on and he says "Though they shall be turned back and be utterly put to shame those who trust in idols who say to molten images you are our gods so we have this deliverance concept and now we have this this talk about idols, and we're going to head into that. So this commentator says the next section, the the first is God is going to deliver me from, uh, from captivity here, and the second section is that this deliverance, his ability to deliver his people from bondage is evidence that God is who he says he is and can do what he says he's going to do. Part of what was covered last week, you remember the concept that says, you're gonna be my witnesses. The things I have done for you and will do for you, you're gonna be my witnesses as to what I'm capable of. This kind of courtroom scene. And and we see some of this back and forth um, as what we're gonna head into today. And then the second little subdivision not only are you going to be my witnesses to what's going to happen but but now I'm going to really I'm really going to deal with this idol issue um, I'm God I'm going to deliver you in fact that deliverance is evidence of how big a God I am and more than that the idols that people have been dallying with they're nothing and that's that's the big picture of where, where we're heading so let's pick up again at verse 6, and it, verses 6 through 8 basically talks about um, the uniqueness of God and, and the, the, the singular awesomeness of God. You know, he is so far and away above everything, and, and he just lays it out there. Verse 6 again, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. And who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there any other gods besides me? Is there any other rock? I know of none. In paraphrase, it's like I'm the first and last. From A to Z, there's nothing before the A, and there's nothing after the Z. And all that stuff in the middle, there's nothing there either. I am it. There's no other God. And if there is, let me hear from him. Let, let's hear it. Can they tell what's going to happen? They can, can they tell what has already happened and why it happened? Can they say all this? And, of course, the answer is, is none. Is there any other rock? I know of none. And now he's going to roll up his sleeves and really just lay waste this whole idol thing. Verse 9 Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so they will be put to shame. Who is fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Look at verse 12. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool, does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another that is another craftsman verse 13 shapes wood he extends a measuring line he outlines it with red chalk he works it with planes and outlines it with a compass makes it like the form of a man like the beauty of a man so that it may sit on a horse Now in verse 14 he starts talking about the wood and what's going to happen with this wood it's, it's such a great argument Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself and he makes a fire to bake bread. and He makes a god and worship it, worships it. He makes a graven image and falls down before of it. Verse 16. Look at the irony here. Half of it he burns in the fire. And over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied, warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm and I've seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a God, his graven image, and he falls down before it and worship and prays to it, Deliver me for thou art my God. Isn't that crazy? What a great argument. I know we've got some woodworkers here. You take your piece of wood, you cut it in half, half of it you... Light up the stove, and half of it, you make something that you bow down to. Is have you ever heard of a of a more logically concise, brilliant argument against the things that we make with our hands, the things that we come up with, that we decide we're going to put on a pedestal and we're going to bow down to? Doesn't it seem so silly? What happens if you burn the wrong half? What happens if you burn the wrong half? Uh, Maybe that's the right thing to do, is to to burn the wrong half. Um, So crazy. So crazy. I mean, he's just highlighting the idiocy of of the things that we do, the substitutes that we come up with for God. And it's easy for us to, you know, most of us don't worship these things, but hold that little bookmark there because it's going kind to of hit home for us. Verse 18, they do not know nor do they understand, for he is smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. And no one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding To say, I've burned half of it and baked bread over it's cold and I roast meat of it and then the rest of it I make into an abomination and I fall down before a block of wood. This is the heart of it in verse 20. He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside. Ultimately, the real troubles that man has are always heart issues, right? It's always a heart issue. A deceived heart has turned him aside. Um, I don't... Uh, I, it's, it's. Sometimes it's kind of easy to know how much time it's going to take to cover a passage. Sometimes it's not easy to know how, time, how hard... It's going to be to cover a passage. I think um, uh, the the text here, I think this is actually a good stopping point, but I want to use this to talk about um, this concept of, of idols. And the essence of idol worship, or at least one of them, uh, some people have argued that almost every sin and failure of humanity can probably be traced back, at least in part, to idol worship. You know, we, we put something else in the place of God, and we take God down, and, and we don't submit to that authority, and, and, and then what does that say about us? And so I want to grapple with one aspect of that, and I don't think is, or at least I hope is not too much of a stretch. One commentator said that one of the issues raised in this passage is that um, who has the truth? Who has the truth here? You know, God's saying in Isaiah, is certainly documenting um, the truth here—the the revealed truth. You know, God is is telling us something about Himself, and He's telling us truth about man-made things. And are we going to are we going to believe that? Are we going to See him as a source of truth? Or are we going to go with our own notions? He says, um, regarding truth, commentator says, this is where Isaiah is coming from. And it is the same place that Jesus Christ was coming from when he said to Nicodemus, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How are you going to believe if I speak of heavenly things? Jesus was claiming... To have direct access to the truth. More than that, he was claiming to be the means of that truth being revealed to the world. This is where the passion of an Isaiah and a Jesus come from the conviction that the truth about nature and life has been revealed to us and that we can then speak with assurance about right ways to live and wrong ways to live. Um, Right and wrong, those basic things. Is it, you know, remember when our introductory passage to Isaiah? You know, we were talking about those northern kingdoms that were um, uh, most close to the the pagan border, and and what was their problem? They were dabbling in idols. And it wasn't long after that, when they, they didn't listen to the prophecies, they kept going with the idols, and they were taken over. The idols that they were worshiping couldn't save them. The true God that was telling them not to worship the idols could have saved them. Just said, you know, just worship me. I made you, I brought you out of Egypt. Oh, that's the history here. And once again, he's having to, to tell them about the idiocy of going your own way. Um, what is what are rather, I should say, the idols of today? And I think in in, in one very Obvious point nowadays is this this concept that um, I guess Americans don't really take. We don't really put a substitute up as idol. We put ourselves there, right? We say, you know, God doesn't get to decide for me. I don't have to submit to that. I get to decide. I get to decide, and what I decide—that's the way it should go. Um, I've been—I've been toying with this this notion in my head. You know, we've been hearing about, and I don't know if you've talked about this at all, Dad. Um, this bill in North Carolina, the HB two bill. Have you talked about this? Smart man. (laughs) Uh, This is the the House Bill 2 being debated in the North Carolina legislature. Of course, it's been all in the news. Um, As I understand it, the the city of Charlotte came up with a local law um, basically saying that um, a a person who was calling themselves transgendered which I'll talk about that definition in a minute, um, could elect to use any particular public restroom that they wanted to use and uh, and that this would be the law of the land for, I think it was going to extend to businesses as well and so forth. The North Carolina legislature said, you don't have the right to do that. Um, in fact, we're going to go even further and say, we're going to draw the line and say you have to use the bathroom, consistent with the sex on your birth certificate and then of course the Attorney General of the US government didn't like that um, said you can't do that both government entities are suing each other um, uh, the uh, the pressure from Washington has been exerted over the entire nation through edicts concerning public schools and saying all public education All those receiving government monies who are involved in public education have to behave a certain way. And something has just kind of struck me that the logic there is um, is just, it's flawed to me. And so I tried to to diagram this out in my mind, and, and this is kind of as far as I've gotten. And again, I think that this will be an application of Scripture. Um, Obviously, there's going to be some things here that are only my fault. Um, So here is what I understand to be the typical argument of of the transgendered community. And basically, transgender apparently refers to someone who simply identifies themselves as... Being uh, of the opposite sex and the than which they were born. Um, that's that's the notion. And if you read even in, I tried to look and see what the medical definitions were, and they say that um, if you are such a person that you might be bothered by this and have something called gender dysphoria. Dysphoria means uh, feeling bad about something. Um, and, uh, and then that's the problem that apparently needs to be fixed. So here's the argument. Uh, I'm a male, but I identify as a female. I'm not happy about being physically male. Therefore, I need to live as female in order to be happy. Furthermore, society needs to accept my choice to be female. And I believe my insurance company should pay for me to be as female as possible. And I believe it is wrong for society to restrict the expression of my behavior related to that choice. And the government should be willing to infringe on the privacy of others so that I don't have to feel uncomfortable. That seems to me to be the gist of the argument. (laughs) <laughs> here's the thing. Here's here's the thing. I think the logic, if you apply it to any other circumstance, it doesn't it doesn't work. In fact, there was a very nice article in the editorial portion of the Observer by a gentleman who was uh, an African American gentleman, very much involved in the civil rights movement. And there's been this move to try to say that that this transgender thing is a civil rights thing, and he says, no, this is a slap in the face to those, who've, uh, those of us who've been trying to get uh, civil rights in the white versus black thing. And he said, how dare you put these in the same argument? He makes a very good case for that. It gets a little silly when you realize the ultimate, the ultimate thing is it's all based on this person deciding that there's something different than how they were born. I'm going to apply the same logic to this example. I am Caucasian, but I identify as a Native American, specifically a member of the Catawba Indian nation. I'm not happy about being Caucasian. I need to live as a member of the Catawba nation in order to be happy. Therefore, the government should give me access to all the rights and privileges of being a member of the Catawba Nation. You say I'm being unreasonable? You question my argument? Now, I know I look very pale, (laughs) but from my earliest days, I felt that my skin tone and my brain were in conflict. Every time I'd watch cowboy and Indian movies, I'd find myself rooting for the Indians. (laughs) I like history. Archery and my pottery skills are improving. (laughs) Now, I recognize that my DNA doesn't have much in common with the natural members of the Catawba Nation, but if you gathered up enough people like me and looked closely enough at our brain scans, you might find something that we have in common. Now, I recognize that those who are born into the Catawba Nation might be uncomfortable if I start using services and resources that were set aside for them, but it's simply not appropriate to withhold those from me because... If you do, I'm going to experience mental anguish that cannot otherwise be relieved. Thus, you simply have to do it. Same logic, right? But it sounds silly, doesn't it? This notion that we get to define our own truth, it doesn't really it doesn't really compel me that much. Now, I need to add, since this will be on the internet, the following disclaimer. (laughs) I have full respect for the dignity of our Native Americans, including that of our neighbors, the Catawba Nation, and I would fully expect them to not acquiesce to my demands to join their tradition. (laughs) And of course, I'm being absurd to make a point. Rather, I would expect them to recognize that I didn't belong. I'm sure they'd be happy for me to learn about their tribe and culture, but that there were certain privileges that I would never qualify for. I fully get that there are those who, for lack of a better phrase, don't feel comfortable in their own skin. The options appear to be, in general, change what you can and accept the rest. Here's the tricky part. Where do you draw the line? We're okay if we change our clothes, if we change our hairstyle, our hairstyle, We're okay if a person wants to change the shape of their nose or the shape of some other curve on their body. But where's the line? It seems that society will eventually draw a line somewhere. For example, legally it appears that we're okay with pornography as long as a person being exploited for their body is over 18. Where do you draw the line? if you read the guidance in quotes that the Attorney General sent to all the schools, um, it's, it's, a, it's a line, I think, that is drawn that many people, Tim, wouldn't be super comfortable with. Um, for example, it says, "It's okay if it, it says a school may provide separate facilities, that is bathroom and, and locker room facilities." A school may provide separate facilities on the basis of sex, but must allow transgender students access to such facilities consistent with their identity. In other words, they can go to whatever bathroom they want. And a school may not require transgender students to use facilities inconsistent with their identity or to use individual facilities. In the same way, it says uh, they have to have access, like if this was a college, if you had guys' dorms and gals' dorms, women's dorms, Um, they can choose whichever they want. Um, Ironically, it says, let's say you're a female using a female locker room and an anatomically male person wants to use the female locker room because they identify themselves as a woman. You can't require that person to use an individual bathroom But you have to provide a private bathroom for the anatomically female person to use if they want. Um, Things are crazy. And ultimately, um, it appears that, like a lot of things, it's when when you elevate self and self gets to decide, it gets crazy. And this is a situation where where certain people have said, um, "I've got this thought in my head and it's causing me distress, and the only way I can fix it is if society says it's okay and helps me live in this choice that I want to live." Um, I think that in essence is the ultimate in idolatry to say uh." I get to decide. Let me kind of complete my argument a little bit. The fall introduced all sorts of problems. Physically, our DNA is messed up. Spiritually, we have a fallen nature. And the fact of the matter is, all of us are sinners destined to live with an imperfect body and an imperfect mind. I get that, right? I get that there are people with different inclinations, and I'm purposefully excluding. There, are, there certainly are, are medical situations where uh, something actually does go wrong during uh, fetal development, and the sex organs don't work out um, in a definable way, and, and there's, there's definitely a, a separate um, situation there uh, that is beyond just a, a person's... Um, uh, inclination and choice um, but the fact of the matter is uh, we're not all the same You know, some have bodies that are graceful and athletic and beautiful and minds that are brilliant and creative and, and we're all along that continuum somewhere and I'm always probably going to be a little bit jealous of somebody who has certain attributes that I don't have and there may be somebody else jealous of some attributes that I have or you know there are inequalities in life right there we all to use the coarse phrase you know we all have to play the hand we're dealt to a degree but when we when we when we're faced with a reality that we don't like we don't create some idol that says it's okay even if that idol is ourself. Rather, we submit to God because ultimately, if you go this other way, you're saying, let's say you were one of those people who says, you know, I'm just, I'm not, I'm, I know i am got guy parts, but I'm not feeling like a guy. Let's say that does cause you mental anguish. Can God help that person? Absolutely. Can God help? Can good, gracious Christians rally around that person and say, we know you're struggling with this. We love you through it. I mean, can that happen? Absolutely. Does God love that person any less? No way. But for the person to say, the the only way I can be happy is to, to live in a way that's different And expect everybody else to make it okay, to me that's saying, God's not good enough to help me. The government's got to help me, society's got to help me, because God's not good enough. That seems like what it's saying to me. I said, ultimately we live our own lives and we can choose to accept who we are and believe that God will walk with us in the life that we're given or we can believe the lie that says he's not strong enough to get me through this. That he doesn't love me enough to comfort me through this and he's not wise enough to understand my circumstances. In essence, that's what we're saying otherwise. The commentator wrote in one section and this was written probably 15 years ago. He says the challenge that a passage like this places before contemporary Christians, especially young Christians, is whether we will confront our age as directly as Isaiah and the rest of the prophets of Israel did. This will require increasing courage and the willingness to be rejected and ultimately disenfranchised. Unless our society undergoes a major revival, Christians will soon be seen as the enemy of the state. But God is writing our history and no one else. So we can dare to be different, and in doing so, to be lights for truth, so that others lost in the dark can find their way home to the Father. Somewhat prophetic, I think. Um, I think one of the one of the the reasons I think that things get as polarized as they are is that the churches has not really found a comfortable place to land on this right there are and I'm being I'm being a little bit polarizing in, in these comments I understand because I'm sure there are some who found some middle ground but there are some denominations that um, are so strict that that um, there's no grace there uh, to try to to you know, graciously love people in a in the proper way, and then there's some denominations that all standards are gone, right? And 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 you have uh, endorsement of these idolatrous ways of thinking, like I, like I've been talking about. Um, so it's it's been confusing. I, I think one of the challenges for us in this day and age is to is to hold to the truth and graciously administer, you know, the help that God brings all of us. You know, that it's really no different. It's really no different. And get back to this heart issue, um, one of those famous passages that I think speaks to this in Romans 12. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Idolatry is worshiping the wrong thing. I don't think it's any accident that Paul says, we've got to present ourselves, flawed as they are, back to God so that he can do something with them. And what does he say he's going to do? The next verse? He's going to help us. It says, we won't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind our minds are going to be crazy. They're going to be silly. They're going to be stupid. They're going to have a three-year-old who says that they want to be something different than they are. And you're going to have parents who are going to lovingly lead them properly and you have other parents who are going to be, a, I think, unwise and, and endorse that three- or four-year-old notion. We all need our minds renewed and we can't have but one standard. It's got to be the standard of the Bible. It's the only thing that's not changing. It's the only truth that's been revealed to us. It's the only thing we can trust. When we start to crank out truth by ourselves, we just go down blind alleys. We, we don't get to where we really want to get to. Verse 20. A deceived heart has turned aside, he cannot deliver himself. Cannot deliver himself. Who of us can deliver ourselves? None of us. Only by God's grace. Through Jesus are we delivered. So many times in Isaiah, God says, I'm your redeemer. I'm your deliverer. I will get you out of this. That is the solution. We cannot expect government to fix our problem. We just can't. And if that means that we wind up in the minority of things, then that's how it's going to be. And I think, you know, it's certainly going to be appropriate for us to pray for our friends and neighbors across the state line, um, for our local teachers and our local school boards who are going to be struggling to grapple with these guidelines at the risk of being threatened and all this sort of stuff. It's tricky territory. Um, how How are we salt and light in a way that's gracious? Now the only, maybe not the only thing, but one of the encouraging things is we have to remember that all of the New Testament, was that written to a group of people who had a nice Christian government to work in? No. Was that written to a culture that believe the things of the Bible, necessarily? Not really? Was that written to a group of people who, you know, said just, you know, let the government fix your problems? No. It was all about changing the heart from the grassroots up. And when there was an opportunity, when Paul had the ear of a government official, he laid the truth out there, but it was always in a gracious way. And he wasn't asking... The government officials to fix his problems. In essence, he was actually trying to help the government fix, official fix his own problems. You know, and I, I think if we can, and I don't, I don't have a lot of great answers politically. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't have this all figured out that far. But um, if we, if we continue to stay anchored to Scripture, then I don't think we're going to wander too far away. And. If we, if we have that, that delicate combination, you know, Jesus came in a spirit of grace and truth. If we can have truth and grace, then I think we're going we're gonna to wind up in a decent spot. I'm sure every family knows someone or has someone in their family who's troubled with things like this transgender issue, sexual orientation issues, it's everywhere. Um, But grace and truth, that's what we, you know, and that's different than saying, pat on the head, everything's going to be okay. That's not the same. You got to have, you got to have both. Um, I hope I haven't wandered too far from a field day, Um, but, uh, you know, Isaiah was a prophet and he was confronting the things of his day and the ways that things were gone astray, and there are folks that are trying to do the same thing in the worlds that we're living in. And and we're on the front lines. So um, pray hard. Gird up, like it says in Ephesians 6, because the battle is right outside your door. And uh, I pray that God lets us all do the best we can. Uh, any comments? Uh, we'll close a little early so they can get in. Here. I think that's because of a lot of stuff that's it. It's hard to know what the ramifications will be. But uh, certainly I think a lot of people have worries about about it. Yeah. Doesn't it somewhere in Scripture say there was a no king and everyone did what was right and was like their own lives? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And um, uh, I just pray that, that we can always use it. Um, as the only objective lens we have through which to view the things that are happening in front of us. Uh, help us to um, to understand it well enough and to be sensitive to your spirit enough that we can be both salt and light, both grace and truth, and that um, we can go forward uh, as those who claim your name in the way that you would have us. Uh, we ask, We ask your grace and your power we try to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.